Hello and welcome to another edition of Ready, Set, Retire, an audio guide packed with information, insight, and experiences for people who are planning for, about to, or already have retired. I'm John McComb, recently retired after a 50-year broadcast career, the past 36 years at CKNW Radio in Vancouver. I'm sitting down with my co-host, Lori Pinkowski every other Friday to help answer the many questions that come up as you prepare to relax and devote some time to you and your new life. Lori is the founder of Pinkowski Wealth Management and is a Senior Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity. Hi, and welcome to Part 2 of our in-depth look at estate planning with lawyer Rose Shawley. She's with Harper Gray in Vancouver. On our last show, Rose filled Lori and I in on the importance of having a will and walked us through the ins and outs of having one prepared. On today's episode of Ready, Set, Retire, we want to explore the transition of wealth as it relates to estate planning, especially with the soaring real estate prices in Greater Vancouver. So, Lori and Rose, let's dive right in. Thank you, John. Rose, I wanted to touch on the transition of wealth. You know, many clients don't realize how large their estate is going to be, especially here in Vancouver, if you own a home. I mean, you don't even realize how high your property has gotten in terms of being valued at not just one, two, three, possibly million or more. And it's really important to be prepared for that transition of wealth to your beneficiaries. And, you know, I think I see a lot of complicated, or as I call it, unique family situations. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you see even more than I do. And I know I always I always joke with you that you're always preparing for the worst, worst, worst case scenario. And I think uh, you should. And, and, and I value that about you. And so what are the top three issues you have seen when helping families with their estate planning? There's definitely some top ones. And one of the things that I find really interesting and that tends to give people peace of mind is while it may feel like their circumstances are unique, they can probably take comfort in knowing that similar fact circumstances have arisen and they're not in uncharted territory. So there are plans that will work that are tried and tested and they don't have to be taking major risks in their planning. And I would say that the three main scopes of complexity are for blended families where people don't plan for extracting value from businesses and to fail to account for jurisdictions. If we break those three down, there are some commonalities, but there are also some key characteristics that people can be on the lookout for. One of the problems that our legislation has fairly well entrenched is how our wills variation structure operates. And we have this legislated right to challenge any person's will if they are our spouse or our parent. There are no dependency requirements and there's no age limit. So if I have a child who physically abused me, financially defrauded me, has $70 million in net worth and is 65 years old, they still have a right to challenge my will. There's no, there's no cutoff. The legislation says you are my child, you can challenge. Wow, that's uh, interesting and good information to know. So children, whether you like them or you don't, they have a lot of <laughs> is what you're saying. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you, so you better make sure you like them. <laughs> or okay. plan strategically. <laughs> yes, either, either or. Where this really comes as a practical problem for so many families is that it can have the consequence of pitting 
spouses against children and children against other children. And in the first instance, it's because of the classification of who's a child. My natural child or a child I've adopted is considered my child for these purposes, but my stepchild is not unless I've also adopted that child. So if I have pulled uh, what I like to call the Liz Taylor scenario and I've had a very exciting marital life and I want to leave something to kids from a prior relationship, but I want to leave the significant bulk to my final spouse, the legislation says I have legal obligations to all of these people. And if any of them wants to, they have this legislated right to go to the court and say they should get more. And we, we often see a lot of litigation around this. In the second circumstance of pitting kids against kids, we see this most often in family business circumstances where I've got one or more kids who's actively involved in the business and then another arm of the kids who really aren't. It just was not their cup of tea. And if I decide to leave the business to them through a pure well mechanism, they're usually going to be receiving a disproportionate value. And again, that leads us into these wills variation rights. So blended families and family businesses really have some additional planning that they can do to mitigate those issues. The second scenario also ties into the family business, and it's where people really haven't turned their mind to planning for extracting the value from the business. There's so many great ways to do this that help mitigate the long-term capital gains version. And what I really, really like, because I just love tax and law that just doesn't get better than that. It's like peanut butter and chocolate. (laughs) What you can do is you can proactively plan for the tax steps that can be taken after my date of death. And it's what we call postmortem tax planning. And our tax regime can be a little bit, I don't want to say complicated, because that's a given for anybody who's tried the daunting task of reading our Income Tax Act. But it, it really can create several layers that aren't immediately obvious. And the consequence of those layers is it can tax the same value multiple times. If I pass away and I own shares in a private company, so I've got my law corporation, for example, all of the value of my assets at my date of death is going to be deemed to be disposed of, and I'm going to pay capital gains on the accrued value. And let's say my law corporation owned a piece of real estate. And a year after I die, my company sells that piece of real estate. It's only been a year. The value of my shares included that real estate and my estate was taxed on it. And now my company is going to be taxed on the value of that real estate again when it sells it. Then I'm going to try and move the value out of the company into the hands of the beneficiaries, presumably now the shareholders. And I'm going to pay taxes on the dividends that I move out of the company to some extent. So that same value through different mechanisms has now had three potential layers of tax. So when you're looking at extracting value from the business, it's really important to take certain steps while I'm alive to manage that postmortem tax planning and to create opportunities to minimize that. And just as importantly, to manage my capital gains through strategic planning while I'm still here and can enjoy those benefits. Definitely. I mean, people want to pay the least amount of taxes possible and keep more in the family. And that's why it's so valuable and so important to plan ahead with a lawyer such as yourself and with a financial planner and make sure that, again, you're keeping up to date and on top of any of these future tax liabilities. Absolutely. The final thing that often gets overlooked, and it's really easy to solve, so this should not be intimidating, 
please spread the word. Very simple fix, not expensive, not complicated, very lovely is that it's important to account for the jurisdictions in which assets are actually located. If I have real estate in BC and Alberta and Arizona and Portugal, I've had clearly had an exciting spending spree. Each of those is its own jurisdiction for estate purposes. And that includes the difference between BC and Alberta. Even though we're all in Canada, each province is its own jurisdiction. If I do just one will, and I do it here in BC trying to apply to everything, it is much more complicated trying to actually administer the estate. And to your very first question about how should I select an executor, if you're trying to pick somebody that you like and love, don't put them through this. <laughs> do the planning in each jurisdiction so that it's as simple as possible and there's as little delay as possible. So, Rose, how can you make sure that your money is passed on for generations to come? Is there any way to, it almost seems kind of strange, control it from <laughs> the afterlife? Well, there's great visuals that go with that. <laughs> Before I ever help people create plans that do that, I generally like to run through with clients all the complications attendant on it to make sure that what they envision as preserving it is actually worth the cost to them. And that's because the most common way to transition wealth in a way that keeps it for multiple generations is either using companies or trusts. Both of them have tax implications, and people tend to prefer trust as a concept. I'm not quite sure what the mystique around trust is, but really it just takes five minutes with me to completely ruin their day. One of the main problems with trust is that they have two built-in expiration dates. Each jurisdiction has what we call a rule against perpetuities that sets a maximum lifespan for a trust. Generally speaking, in BC, that's 80 years. So that's our ultimate drop dead date most of the time. So if somebody's looking at a plan where they want to transition wealth through three or four generations, given average lifespans, that's a very limited runway. The other expiration date that comes with trusts is for capital gains purposes. Every trust has a tax life of 21 years. And on each 21st anniversary of the trust, the trust is deemed to have disposed of all of its assets for market value and all accrued gains are taxed. Sometimes that's a really big deal if it's got real estate in there that's gone up in value or shares in a private company that have gone up in value. Sometimes it means absolutely nothing. I might have a piece of real estate that has completely bottomed out or I might just have cash sitting there, in which case it's a non-event. But every 21 years, I've got a trigger in there that can be quite expensive. Separate and apart from those tax considerations when people are looking at these really long-term goals – they also have to think about the compliance costs. And if we touch on something that was mentioned earlier about selecting executors and trustees, I need someone who is going to be alive and capable to handle all of this. And whether it's I've got a successive list of individuals who I think can do this or I'm turning to a trust company, typically somebody is going to be charging fees for that service, which means that's money off the top that isn't going to those intended beneficiaries. And then the, the item that rounds out this little hat trick is the ongoing compliance costs. Whether people go with a company or a trust, there's going to be an annual tax return due for that entity. And again, just money that has to be expended over the course of that mechanism. And it's not huge, but when you look at it in aggregate, 
for a lot of people, they then run the numbers in a very simplified way because, of course, we can't project cost in a really useful way 80 years into the future. And they look at what erosion there's going to be to that legacy and go, no, you know what? That's not actually what I wanted. Now, I'd say for about 20% of the people with whom I deal, that is, in fact, exactly what they wanted. And the tools are there to set it up, often using a blend of trusts or companies. And it's just a matter of carefully structuring it with all that in mind. Let's talk about whether you recommend people name their grandchildren in the will or should they keep it to just uh, the children. And especially when you talk about blended families, I think if you start talking about grandchildren, it can get somewhat complex. For personal reasons, I stay away from grandkids because I'm just a constant disappointment to my good Jewish mother for not having given her any. (laughs) So this is just a dangerous rabbit hole in my family. From a broader planning perspective, on the other hand, it varies widely. And I'll I'll be completely transparent and say that there is no right answer on this. And it's very circumstance driven. If I have children and I have a spouse and I'm looking at including grandchildren, it's almost always relevant to factor in that there is that wills variation baseline that says I'm taking money out of the classes of people where the legislation recognizes a legal right and putting it into the hands of a class of people for which the legislation does not recognize an entitlement. So I'm creating some exposure there by taking that step. But let's say we're talking about providing for my grandchildren because my child has passed. That's a different set of dynamics. And particularly if I've become the guardian of that grandchild, the rationale will weigh differently with a court if a wills variation challenge is brought than if I'm actually taking away from people who have that legislated right. So the the underlying matrix makes a really big difference. Just as importantly, though, we have to circle back to managing those assets for those grandchildren. Have I turned my mind to who's going to be alive and capable to run that inheritance for them? until they're old enough to receive it and to safely manage it. So it just might be too long of a period of time almost to to plan for to bring in the grandchildren. One question I get quite a bit or come across is, how do you protect your family wealth from a possible marital breakdown of one of your beneficiaries? So one of your adult children receives an inheritance and then and or at the same time is going through a divorce. I was just on CKNW talking about this and, and Rose, I had asked for your opinion also last minute. And the reason I brought it up on NW was because I do see this happen often. And you just have to plan for it and understand the legalities around that sort of situation. So if you could touch on that, that would be wonderful. I adore this topic because it's a topic that I think really needs normalization. There's a really material stigma that still pervades a lot of conversations in talking about spousal disharmony and planning for it in a really proactive way through things like domestic agreements. And when I talk about domestic agreements, that's the umbrella term for things like prenuptial agreements, cohabitation agreements, marriage agreements. In BC, we switched to a model in 2014, sorry, 2013, good grief, where has the time gone, called the Family Law Act. And the FLA stipulates at a very basic level, and this is the 10,000-foot version, that what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, and that the value we create during our relationship, including the increase in value on those excluded assets, is going to be presumptively shared equally. And when we're figuring out what's mine and what's yours and what we brought into it, we also get exceptions for inheritances and gifts we receive. So if I leave my daughter 
two million dollars that is her separate property and it's not family property and so too if her spouse receives two million dollars that's her spouse's separate property but where it gets really complicated is we take that and we put it into a joint account or a shared asset. So we use it to pay off the mortgage in a house that we both own. The simplest thing people can do is just keep your own assets in your own name. And that's less of an alien concept than it was, I would say, even 15 years ago, where it was much more common for people to have entered into long-term relationships at a younger age, grown the entirety of their wealth together, and have commingled all their assets. So that's certainly a more common planning tool than I used to see, and it does provide some insulation for those inheritances and gifts that we receive. But it is not a complete substitute for doing a domestic agreement. And when we create a domestic agreement, the real beauty of it is that it helps us set out not just which assets we're bringing in and what their value is so that we're not spending a fortune down the road on forensic accounting, but it's also generating those conversations between the two spouses about finances. And finances are still a really taboo topic between spouses. And I think it's actually been exacerbated by the fact that we tend to keep so many of our assets separate. You don't need to know what's going on because we've got the one joint account. I put my payments in there every month. You put your payments in there every month. We know it works. Beyond that, it doesn't matter. There's a lot else that matters. And finances routinely tear families apart. And Laura, you probably see this much more than I do. So I think the exercise of going through that domestic agreement is really valuable. I think that what I've seen quite a bit is the parents, say, in their 70s or 80s, don't believe that their adult children will ever go through divorce. They think everything is hunky-dory because the adult children aren't really sharing their marital problems with <laughs> mom and dad. And, of course, I'm dealing with the whole family. So I do see that. And the other thing that has come up in conversation is it's not always marital breakdown. But for example, if your adult child passes away and the money flows to their spouse and then that spouse remarries. And I think that is a flow of their family wealth that they have not anticipated, possibly have not and more likely have not planned for. So again, just a conversation that has to be had with a lawyer, again, as you work through these issues and just ensuring that, you know, you have everything set up for the unexpected, as we were saying earlier. And there are mechanisms that people can implement through their own planning to insulate inheritances that their kids receive, but the terms are often restrictive to a point that they find it unpalatable. So if I wanted to leave everything to my son, but I'm really concerned a possible spouse might make a claim against it or that if my son passes and it's in his direct name, he'll leave it to her and she'll go leave it to the pool boy or tennis coach we can build in some of those protections. The problem becomes the the mechanics of that trust. In order to have really robust insulation from those family law claims if there's a divorce or to make sure that my son can't distribute it all out to himself so that it's still in his hands when he passes, I need to make sure that he's not the controlling trustee of it. And that's often a hard pill to swallow because I'm saying I love you, my son, but I don't actually trust you to manage the money. Also, there has to be varied distributions from that trust. If, let's say there's a spousal breakdown, I die, it's in this trust, and my son and his spouse separate 10 years later, and she claims that the assets in the trust are family property. If every year 
a distribution was made from the trust to my son in a predictable amount, it's really hard to claim that this wasn't really his asset. In practice, the ways to insulate against that are not to provide consistent payments and instead provide payments to other people as well. When you get into the weeds on that, is that something people are really comfortable with? Am I willing to say, A, I'm not going to let my son control this trust, and B, that other people are actually going to receive part of his inheritance in practice just for the sake of insulating it from a possible family law claim? Yeah, I mean, you can really see why and when trusts are important uh, in terms of estate planning. And I think that the trust arena almost needs a, a ready, set, retire episode probably in itself. And I also believe that trusts are just, again, so unique to everyone's situation. And, you know, again, sitting down with a professional to really go through whether you need a trust or don't, uh, whether you want to accept the extra costs of having and maintaining a trust. I think those are all things that uh, are great to bring up with a lawyer. We what? think so. <laughs> <laughs> of, course of course you do. You do. <laughs> So what happens if you have no children? Uh, what do you recommend for people uh, in that situation? You can do whatever strikes your fancy. From a legal perspective, this is the oasis. Because of the class of people who have wills variation claims, we're restricted to spouses and kids. So if I don't have kids and my plan is to leave everything to my spouse, my wills variation risk is almost non-existent. And I can then leave everything however I wish thereafter. If I don't have a spouse, I really have achieved planning nirvana because I have absolute autonomy over the distribution of my estate, unencumbered by wills variation risk. There is still some consideration if I want to leave some to my spouse, but not all. That's where you, again, have to return to the wills variation issue because my spouse does have that legislated right. How realistic that is to manifest will often depend on the scale of my estate and what other provision I'm making for my spouse, but I certainly have increased my flexibility. And if I look at my friends who are trying to plan for their long-term well-being of their children, I got to say, it's generally less expensive planning when you don't have kids. It's probably less expensive overall if you don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> now you tell me. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? I, no one told me this a few years ago. What happens, Rose, if there is an estranged child? How much ability do they have to contest a will? And walk us through that. What does that mean? Estrangement is not going to impair their will's variation rights in any way, shape, or form. They will have to lay out for the court in the event that I have not only gone through the estrangement, but I have reduced their portion of the inheritance or I have excluded them entirely. But that's a matter that then ends up as a debate before the courts. And the reason for the estrangement becomes very relevant if it was something like financial abuse or anything that was really done in a harmful way to me that's objectively documented. My exclusion or limitation of that child's inheritance is often more favorably looked upon by the court. But if I did something that really offends public policy, I, I'm estranged from my child because I didn't like my child's spouse's religion or I didn't like their race. That is not going to fly with the court. And that is, that's one of those things that will pretty universally in BC result in a successful wills variation claim. It is possible to engage in alternate planning in order to mitigate wills variation issues. And those are often by way of using alter ego trusts or joint partner trusts. These are delightful little creatures that were created within the four corners of the Income Tax Act. 
that lovely piece of legislation has created these very particular kinds of trusts that don't have that 21-year expiration date that I had mentioned earlier. I can only create them if I'm 65 or older and I'm a Canadian resident, but when I push my assets into that, the 21-year clock does not start. When I sell the assets or I transfer them or when I die is when I'm going to have the capital gains trigger. So I've got a much longer runway and people turn to these because they don't have that 21-year issue. And the beauty of them is that we think of them as will substitutes, meaning that within the four corners of the trust document, it sets out what the distribution of the assets and the trust will be on my death. And it's not a will, so it's not subject to wills variation. And quite happily, my assets go where we want them to go. To follow up on the estranged child situation, what, uh, what about if um, the parents, again, have a better relationship with one child than the other uh, and they just want to give more to one child? So you want to give, you know, 60 or 70 percent to one kid and less to the other if they know about it, is it okay? Or is just they can always <laughs> contest it or, or what? Again, just the different situations I've seen where legitimately it made more sense to almost give one kid more money because they were helping their parents as they age or their parents even live with them or one parent does uh, as they were getting older. And so that child, uh, you know, possibly should receive more. But I think what you're saying is, no, it just doesn't flow. The courts see it as 50-50 if you have two kids and that's the way it should go. Is that correct? Largely. I wouldn't say that the courts always see it that way so much as the legislation starts out with that baseline. Mm -hmm. If the facts support an unequal distribution, if there is that that attempt to vary the terms of the will, the courts may support it, but you still have that inherent risk that you're going to end up in court. Where there is disproportionate distributions to one child or another, it would be standard practice that there's clear documentation that's maintained setting out why that happened so that if it does go before the court, the individual who has passed still has some kind of voice on the issue. Yeah, so this when is like the letter of wishes that you can include with your exactly. will. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. And so so open communication um, with family members. I, I get this question quite a bit as well. Uh, people want to keep often what they have and, and how they want it <laughs> divided private from their beneficiaries until they're gone. And <laughs> here you go. I'm out of here kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, so in that case, how, I mean, I often recommend, yeah, open communication is good, but you don't want people to feel like they have to spill the beans on everything they've got <laughs> to their adult children. So, so what do you recommend as uh, the professional lawyer? Oh, this is where you're going to get a very shady lawyer-esque response. I'm so sorry. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> The reason it can be such a complicated answer is that it's almost always fatal and problematic not to let the people you've appointed in key roles, such as your executor or your healthcare representative or your power of attorney, know that you intend to appoint them and get their permission in advance and, of course, have conversations about American status in some of those circumstances. You don't want to be blindsided by that because they may not be equipped to do it and you could end up with a gap in practice because no one's actually wanting to take on that role. But when it comes to distributions, the family dynamic can be so precarious and people carry grudges for so many years and the parents may be completely unaware of them. I mean, one of the, the first files I ever had went on for years because people were fighting over a hat 
nope, this was not about the hat. <laughs> but people were going to go to the mattresses over this hat. And so if people find out that there's a distribution that they feel recognizes something that somehow is unfair or dates back to preferential treatment that's historical, it can really create problems. You also want to keep in mind when you're having these discussions, the really practical consideration that if you do want to disclose to people, you also want to maintain the ability to change the terms of your distribution without creating problems. So I may decide to tell my kids that they're going to be beneficiaries, but I might not always want to say that they're the only beneficiaries because if it's my long-term vision that I might give a portion to charity or to my grandkids, I don't want to have problems trying to validate that to them and having created an expectation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is as much a concern outside major city centers where real estate prices have absolutely skyrocketed, but places like Toronto, Calgary, Victoria, Vancouver, we see a lot of reliance on a generation for their parents' wealth as part of a retirement plan or a home acquisition plan. And if you've communicated to those kids that this is definitely coming their way, it's not uncommon for them to spend it before they've actually received it. And yes, there's the old adages about don't count your chickens before they hatch. We all know that people have, have their fingers up and are counting. So you, you want to take all of those realities into consideration. And a lot of that then boils down to knowing the personalities of the people involved. For sure. And I do think that open communication to a certain degree can be helpful, um, you know, especially with, you know, what would happen to an example would be what would happen to um, the home? How, how quickly would it be sold if one or two of the beneficiaries still live in the home, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've seen that situation. I think that's really important, you know, to put things on the table and communicate about that because I think um, there could be different expectations, for instance, in that example, you know, <laughs> the two beneficiaries may think they get to live there forever, uh, while the, you know, the rest of the beneficiaries want their proceeds from the inheritance. So again, there's no right or wrong way. And I think Rose, you, you would probably agree to this, that there isn't a right or wrong way. It's just about making sure that it's planned for and looking at all different possibilities of, of things going right and, and things going wrong and just making sure you're communicating to your family about that if you feel comfortable about it if not then make sure you talk to your lawyer because again they're always keeping these sorts of questions confidential and you can feel really good talking to professionals about your family situation and as we always encourage people you know there's no question that team can't answer. You know, we've seen a lot of different things out there over our professional careers, and uh, it's important to just bring that to the table. So one last question I've got for you, Rose, is just what advice do you give families to ensure peaceful <laughs> transition of wealth? It's basically to echo what you just said, which is that this is a collaborative process. You can't dump it on one of the professional advisors in your world and walk away and hope that they're going to come up with the plan for you. They can give you the insurance and the investment and the legal advice on options and recommendations, but ultimately you know your family and your beneficiaries and your key people. Be engaged with it, share that information, and have all of your advisors work together with you to create a very well integrated and open process. Rose, you had a ton of great information there. So I think that's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I know how valuable it is. It was my pleasure entirely. 
Rose, thank you so much again. Rose Shawley is a lawyer with Harper Gray LLP. You can reach her for even more information at 604-895-2825, or you can email her at rshawley, that's S-H-A-W-L-E-E, at harpergray.com. Lori, a fantastic uh, couple of uh, segments on uh, Ready, Set, Retire. I've learned an awful lot, and I know you have. Oh, definitely. You know, I I find um, the transition of wealth and estate planning just fascinating, and that's why it's so important to have a a team of of advisors and professionals uh, really helping you plan ahead. And and I came up with a quote as well uh, for a second segment here uh, that I thought uh, made a lot of sense for for estate planning. Plans are nothing. Planning is everything. Very well chosen coming from a financial advisor. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, John. If you want more information or have any questions, please don't hesitate to call Lori and her team at Pinkowski Wealth Management. 604-695-LORI. 604-695-5674. For Lori Pinkowski, I'm John McComb. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Ready, Set, Retire.